Good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. I hope that you have a couple things in your hand. I hope you got a copy of God's Word. If you, if you do, be turning into Genesis 46. We're going to be there in just a second. You should have a sermon notes with back and front. If you only have one with the front, then get you another copy that's back there on the table. You'll need both copies. I always count on one thing. We will always have two pages of notes. <laughs> and uh, Also, this is just for information for you, letting us know what's going on. This is important, so I, we don't have to use time here in our worship to make announcements. So make yourself, make those available to you. So we're almost done with Genesis. We have one more week. I don't know how you feel about that. It's always sort of sad for a pastor when he finishes up a book. It's, it's so much there and so much that we had to leave on the table. I would encourage you, be part of a church that expositionally preaches God's Word. Because if you will abide there, you will preach through the Bible. As we, we pick books and God's faithful church is to churches to bring you to a church. And I pray that you're a part of one that faithfully exposits God's Word. So, where we've been, and before we get there, just you notice we're a little light this morning. We have a mission team in Chicago. Uh, our goal as a church is to have older to younger discipleship folded into everything that we do. And so that our students invest in our kids' ministry, and that we, we, what we desire to see is that our young adults invest in our students, so that we're modeling discipleship through all of life as a body, so that we may go and make disciples, and so we have not only our students gone today, but some of our young adults in Chicago working with church planners. It was amazing to see them worshiping the Lord together this morning, uh, as they sent me some, some pictures, and so we'll, we'll pray for them later. Just remember where we are now. If you got a copy of God's Word, we're at Genesis 46. Remember, we had Joseph in Egypt as a slave sold into there by his brothers. And God in His providence brings a famine in the land. They end up bowing before their brothers. And now they've been reconciled, Joseph to his brothers. And now Joseph says, go get Jacob, go get my father. We've been looking at this seed that was broken at the fall, promised in Genesis 3.15 that through the seed of a woman, I will fix what man has broken, has broken and we, he, I will do it through the seed of a woman. And We've been looking at this seed, trying to keep our eyes on the seed through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now we've been in the Joseph narrative and threw us for a little bit of a loop because we had to be reminded, hold on a second. Who's the promised seed? <laughs> Is it Joseph? No, it's not Joseph, it's Judah. So we learned a little bit about this beautiful narrative that God's about pre preserving and preparing His people, and that He does. Particularly, He prepares Judah. But all through this, and today we want to accent that again, God always keeps His promises to His people. That's what we're seeing. So turn with me to Genesis 45. We're going to back up a little bit. We're going to begin at 45 verse 25, and then we're going to read into Genesis 46 just to get our context this morning. So stand with me in honor of God's Word. We will begin in Genesis 45 and verse 25, and we will read down through 46 to verse 7. 
God's Word says, So they went up out of Egypt, and they came, came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is a ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46, beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his Daughters and his son's daughters, all the offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Lord, as we bow before you, as we honor you by standing, as we read your word, Lord, we ask for your help and your wisdom. Lord, we are but human this morning, and many of us are tired in mind or soul or body. And so, Lord, help us to focus on you this morning over these next few minutes. Lord, help us to understand what it means, Lord, over, Lord, this next two weeks, what it means to not only to live by faith, but to die by faith. Lord, I pray for your people that you would encourage them this morning. That they would know they have been adopted into the family of God, what that means in their life. Lord, help us to not miss the beauty of your blessings this morning for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. And so the brothers have went back to Canaan to tell... Jacob, and remember they had to sort of, they're going to have to be honest for the first time with him because he's lived the last 22 years thinking that Joseph is dead and now Jacob learns something. In verse 25 to 28 of chapter 45, he learns three things. Joseph is alive, God has prospered him, and I get to see him. He can't believe it, but he finally does, sees the the entourage that Pharaoh has sent back so that he could bring all of his possessions. It made me want to begin here because I know I'm not going to be able to. So turn with me, Hebrews 11. I'm not going to be able to spend as much time on this as I would like to, but I want to start here. Because just like God's people in the Old Testament, God's people in the New Testament, which which are us, (laughs) 
From the moment God saves us, we live and we die by faith. So Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look at verse 2. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. And so what we see then in our first point, that by faith, Jacob journeys to Egypt where God blesses him. And, and so we, we look at two different things now. We're thinking about Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And now Israel has multiplied. Now they're becoming a nation. We'll see their multiplication here in a minute. And so we can almost say Israel journeys down to Egypt and God blesses them. Because there's a him, Israel, and now there is a them, Israel. And so we're going to see both of those as we think about what God has blessed these Last days of Jacob. And though his days were ending, yet this is a beginning of a nation. So we are blessed with worship. This is what happens first. The first stop on his way to Egypt is Beersheba. Why Beersheba? Several things. Remember Abraham in chapter 21 entered into a covenant, Beersheba with Abimelech, and he planted a tree and in chapter 22, it's the same area where Jacob was willing to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. It is where Isaac, in chapter 26, experienced a theophany and built an altar. And this is sort of the edge here before they enter into the wilderness to travel to their long track to Egypt. And so Jacob stops there, as his fathers did, and he offered a sacrifice. And, and, and most think at this point, this is not a burnt offering. This is, this is more of a thanksgiving offering, an offering of gratefulness. He f- just found out the son that he thought was dead is alive, and he's going to see him. And so not only does he worship here, does he give thanks to the God who has preserved his son, and now is going to let him see him, he also receives a revelation from God because God speaks to him. Verse 2, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, And said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you into a great nation. And so when he gives him these promises. In verses 2 to verse 4. He reassures him of some things. The first thing he reassures him of is his promises. The promises that he's been already made to him. The promises made back in Genesis 12. I will bless you. And look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, this is very personal. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. You see, God is not confined to a geographic region. He's not trapped to say he only works with, in this area with these people. He's God. And he says, and yet, this is amazing. The transcendent, omnipresent God says, I myself will go down with you. And then he gives them a promise that is emphatic and that is corporate. He says, and I will bring you back up again. He's pointing there corporately to the Exodus. It's this precious picture, this promise that he gives Jacob. Joseph will close your eyes. 
So what's he promising there? He says, not only are you going to see him, you're going to live out your life with Joseph, and he will be at your bedside when you come to see me. Special and intimate promise. But Jacob's Jacob's journey proves one thing, you see. We, We don't trust in a promise. A promise that God's going to give me something. We trust in the God of the promise. This is why he leaves the promised land. Do you understand? You got to feel this this morning. So if you're a, a pastor like me who feels the weight of shepherding God's church, if you're a, a father or a mother or an employer and you feel the weight of leading people, that you're leading them somewhere, that he, by faith, leaves the promised land. He leaves the land God's promised him. And he leads his people, potentially, to destruction in a foreign land. You see, he's trusting in God. By faith, he leaves the land. And he goes to see his son. He takes his whole family with him. And so we see in chapter 46, this under the rest of it, This nation that's identified that he is blessed with descendants. This is exactly what God has promised that he was going to do. And so the rest of chapter 46 from from verse 5 to verse 27 is a nation identified. It's literally a census. You'll be happy to know I'm not going to read all those. (laughs) And and, uh, I do want you to see, look at verse 27, the last part of it. It says, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So that's approximately 70. Go through and count all those and say, hold on a second, let me count them. That's not the point. The, the number is approximate. There was around 70. That's a, that means the totality. Everyone, and if you look, read Genesis 46, it's very redundant. Everything and everyone went. I want you to see this. Turn with me to Exodus. So have that in your mind. 70, go, go to Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 37. I believe I have 38 in your info, guys. It's actually verse 37. Exodus 12, 37. This is when they come out of Egypt at the Exodus. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So they came down... 70. When God brought them back up, there was 600,000 men. Now, even if you multiplied that by two, you get what? 1.2 million. And you, you see how big one family is. God's promises are always fulfilled, and they would be. So he blesses them with worship. We see that he blesses them with descendants. And more importantly to Jacob, he blesses them with a reunion. And so he sends Judah out to sort of ride a scout that guides them to Goshen. Verses 28. And he has sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And it is in the land of Goshen that there is this long-awaited reunion. 22 years from the time that Jacob heard or thought that Joseph was dead until he was reunited with him here in Goshen, and we see that Joseph arrives in style as an Egyptian. Verse 29, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet his father 
Israel, his father in Goshen, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. And so he comes up in all his regal garb that he would be as the second in command of Egypt. And yet you see this picture of a long weeping. Glad, you know, when you, something like this happens, you weep for what you have lost and you weep for what you have just gained. The time that they had lost, they couldn't get back, but the time they have left, they will not neglect it. And so they were overjoyed. You see this by his response. The, Jacob, the old man now at 130 years old, says, now I can die. Sounds like Simeon when he saw Christ. Remember, he was old, been waiting on the Messiah. He said, now I can die. Joseph goes to work now. Remember, Joseph's a wise, discerning, he's a planning guy. Joseph's always thinking about the future. And so we see, look at verse 31, his wise diplomacy. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they are keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and say, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, this is an important part of culture here. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Joseph has got a plan. Joseph understands two things. two things. He knows what it means to be Egyptian. He knows how they think. He knows their culture. He also knows what it means to be an Israelite. He knows their culture. So Egyptians can't stand shepherds. And my family's a bunch of shepherds. And so though they're really excited for us to, be, to get here, they might not be excited for long once they find out what we do for a living. <laughs> and so he makes a plan. Puts them in the right place to start with. Goshen is on the outskirts of Egyptian society. So he puts them out there. This allows them to, to assure Pharaoh they're not going to be an economic burden but they're not going to be in the center of your culture either. So his plan will work brilliantly. So why is all that important? It's an important because the Jewish people were going into a strange land and yet it was important for them to maintain their national identity. And they would. And so this provides not only separation, which is important for God's people, but also prosperity. And we'll see that. I don't want you to miss something that's all through Scripture and redemptive history. And this is the shepherd theme. There is a constant theme in redemptive history of a shepherd. Remember, the guy who's writing this, Moses, becomes a shepherd. David is a shepherd. The prophets who come after guiding Israel are called shepherds of Israel. The Savior's birth was announced to a shepherd. And God refers to himself as a shepherd. And we'll see that here in just a minute. This is a constant thing. So they're blessed with worship. They're blessed with descendants. They've been blessed with reunion. And now we see now they're in the land of Goshen and God's going to bless them with the fertile land, which is what Goshen is. And so Joseph in chapter 47, verses 1 to 12, 
he, he orchestrates this royal audience. Some of the brothers are there, and Jacob's going to be there after this. In verse 1, this meeting happens. He goes back to Pharaoh. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and now they are in the land of Goshen. So he lets them know they're here. Everything they have with them, this is where they are. And immediately, verse 4, verse 3, however, exactly what Joseph predicted, Pharaoh asked them the same thing. See Dean there, he's going to talk for a minute. He's going to say, hey, Dean, what do you do? We, we about all do that, don't we? Pharaoh does it too. They come in there and say, do the little pleasantries. The first thing we want to know is, what is your occupation? Joseph's already knew that was going to come. He'd already put them in the right place for the right question. This prompts a question. You know, hey, we're shepherds. Do you mind if we settle in the land of Goshen? Sort of there already anyway. Is it okay if we settle there? You're not settling until Pharaoh says you're settling. Not only did he let, let them settle... But in verse 6, he gives them employment. He says, you can have the best land. And oh yeah, here's all my cattle and flock. Why don't you take care of them? Take care of my livestock. This is going to be important. Because Joseph's plan here that we're going to look at in just a minute is going to end up making all the livestock pharaohs. And guess who's going to take care of them? God's people. So God's providing providentially, even now. And now we have this meeting of the leaders a meeting of the, of the leader of the known world at this time. And a leader of 70 people. They meet. They engage pleasantries. You see, in Egyptian literature, the ideal age is 110 years old. Jacob's 130. So he's past it. I don't know what's going on in our culture, but it's not good that devalues people once they get at a certain age. But that's not the way it is in most cultures. The more age you are, the more valued you are, the more respected and revered you are. And he is revered here. He ends up blessing Pharaoh. Why? Why would Jacob bless a pagan ruler? Remember Genesis 12, 3? I will bless who? Those who bless my people. Has Pharaoh blessed Joseph? He's, he is. He's been the ruler. Second in command. And now he gives them the best land. Gives them employment. So what we're going to see is there's blessing happening despite the famine. Don't forget that. There's a worldwide famine going on right now. People are dying. It's everywhere. You can't get away from the famine. And yet despite this, look at chapter 47, verses 13 to 27, we're going to see Joseph's plan is kicked into action. And I know oftentimes when we get to this point of the story, when we start talking about this plan that Joseph kicks in, we start talking about it. You know, is socialism okay and all, all these things? We've got to get in the mind of the, narr the narrator here. His purpose is for God's people to be amazed that despite a, the catastrophe of famine, His people prospers. They just don't survive. They thrive because God takes care of them. 
He's, he's wanting us to be amazed at that. And the first thing we're amazed at is that they are not the only one that prospers. Pharaoh prospers under Joseph's plan. He does. Joseph's plan nationalized the land and turned all Egyptians into tenant farmers. Every one of them. Verse 18 and 19 of chapter 47, he gets their wealth. Then he gets their land. In verse 20 and 22, he gets them. Not only them, there's descendants. And we're not sure whether this is an exchange or a mortgage. But here's the point. At the end of this famine, Pharaoh's better off than he was when it began. Why? Because he had blessed Israel. He had blessed God's people. God said that I will bless who blesses him. And that's exactly what we see happening. And you get no complaint from the Egyptian people. They were dying. And Joseph was their hero. The point is that the one who blessed Joseph was blessed. Just as God's promise. And not only that, they, we see Israel prospering. Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settles in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the days of Jacob and his, of years of his life was 147 years. Do you see? Look at verse 27. What happens to God's people? They gained what? They gained possessions. You see it? Verse 27. And they were fruitful. The Egyptian people became tenant farmers. The strangers in the land gained possessions. And they were fruitful and multiplied. Israel prospers in the midst of calamity. Isaiah 45, 7. Many of us know it. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. And if you have a translation now that says, I make well-being and create evil, you've got a bad translation. That's not evil, that's calamity. The Bible cannot mean what it does not say. God creates calamity. In other words, this is an example. The famine was something under God's control. And God's people prospered it in spite of it and even because of it. What God does. And so God reassures them of His promises. He multiplies them. He reunites them. He provides for them land and provisions and prospering their descendants despite the famine. But He's not done. For now we turn to Jacob. Remember we said this began with Jacob. Micah mentioned that a couple weeks ago when he preached This is all really about Jacob, not about Joseph. And so now we get back to Jacob, and we see that God blessed his last days. It is filled with blessing. Not just what he's receiving, but what he's giving. God has filled his last days with blessing because Jacob gets to be a part of what God is doing and what God will do. That it seeds beyond his own life. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his sons Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying, burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he says, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
We're going to look at this more next week. But I want you to see Jacob's burial request was by faith. He says, promise to me you will bury me in the land of promise. Next week I want us to see that. Even after death, Jacob acts by faith. So must we. Jacob's last days are blessed. I want us to see this primarily this morning by the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh. It's amazing. Verses 1 to 5, chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to To Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in love in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and I will give you this land and to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Look at verse 5. And now to your, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Though our outer bodies are decaying and dying, yet the inner man is renewed day by day. And, And here is exactly what we see. Though Jacob's body outwardly is dying, he has never been more sharp and more clearer about what God is going to do. He's never been more confident in his promises than he is on his deathbed. Hebrews 11, 21 said this many times, the greater you know your Old Testament, the more you will love Hebrews. Because it helps us understand, one helps us understand the other. Hebrews 11.21 says this, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each son, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So first remember, Why is Jacob walking with a staff? Remember? He had a little wrestling match with God. Had a little little hip problem after that. He still has it. So we see this picture. Even on his deathbed, he's got it, and he's bowing his head. But look, the most important thing I want you to see, Hebrews calls this encounter, this adoption and blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh worship. Why? Don't get anything else I say today. Get this. Write this down. To believe God's word to such a degree as to base everything in the future on it is worship. To to believe God's word to such a degree as to base everything in your future on that is worship. It's exactly what Romans 12 tells us to live. And he has based everything on God's word. All of their future depends on God's promises. If God, doesn't, if God is not faithful to his promises, they will be destroyed in Egypt. But if he does, God's promises cannot fail. And so what does he do? Verse 3 and 4, he recalls God's promises. What he's doing is a couple different things. One of the things he's doing is, 
is letting them know what I'm about to do, which is to adopt your children and to make them heirs, I've got the authority to do because God's given it to me. God's called me to do this. But more than this, Jacob's believing something by faith. He's believing what God has revealed to him, that these boys are part of the means to accomplish God's sovereign purposes. That they, He believes by faith that these two boys are part of bringing back the covenant promises. And so, look at verse 5. It says, and now. So based off of God's promises, I adopt these two boys. Just so we know, this is not a figure of speech. He says in verse 5, they are mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. At this moment, that's what adoption does. That culture, in the New Testament culture, they would, have, they would adopt slaves and make them an heir. At that moment of adoption, there is no distinction. He goes on to say in verse 6, all the, all the children that come after them, all of Joseph's children, would come and fall in line with Ephraim and Manasseh, their tribe, were coming along underneath them. Now, from this moment, this, these half-Egyptian boys become direct heirs. My spiritual signals ought to be firing off right now. They become heirs. Half-Egyptian, yes, but full heirs. They are adopted into the family. Verse 10 and 12, they finalize it with a kiss and a bow. If you've never read J.R. Packer's Knowing God, I would highly recommend it to you. There's a chapter in there called Sons of God. And in that, I can still remember reading it for the first time saying, how have I missed this? And when God saves us, He adopts us in His family, He says that spiritual adoption is the highest privilege of redemption because of how close it pulls you into God. You see, justification is forensic. It's legal. It's your legal issues. You've got legal problems for a holy God. Justification answers that. Spiritual adoption is a family idea. I'm bringing you into my family. Now you are heirs. This is what this pictures. John 1, 11. John 1, 11, speaking of Jesus, says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, what does it mean to receive him? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you are a child of God today, you are a child of God because it was the will of God for you to be so. That's good news. So Jacob adopts these boys into his family. And just so we know this is not symbolism, now he gives them the blessing of the inheritance. You see, they have displaced Reuben and Simeon. They now have become not just adopted kids, they have become the firstborn. It's amazing. Verse 13, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his 
left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, and, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob's not done. Now, see Joseph's sitting there going, okay, now my sons, my sons, your sons, and now they're going to be blessed. And so, you know, this is the way it worked. Right hand's the position of authority. Your firstborn always gets the right hand. So Joseph sets him up. Manasseh right here, just where, you know, the guy can just reach out. Jacob just reach out and grab him, and Ephraim here, and he goes, whoop. You know, Joseph's still trying to figure out what's going on, and he blesses them. <laughs> you know, and you remember Jacob and Esau, once the blessing goes out, it's like saying something dumb, you can't get it back. <laughs> the blessing's the blessing. He blessed him, and he was... And so, verse 17 and 18, he blesses them. And then Jacob, Joseph's trying to move his hands. That you, you, you got something wrong here. You must be, I know you're old. You're 147, I understand, but you need to move your hands. No. No, you see verse 19 and 20. Jacob's simply the messenger. He's simply doing what God told him to do. He tells him, I know, son, I know. Verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Why does God do this? It's been over and over in Scripture through Genesis, hasn't it? Abel over Cain, Seth over all of them, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brother, Judah over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. Why does God do it that way? 1 Corinthians 1, 27. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. We just have to let the Bible answer these questions and say this is the answer God gives us. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29. So that, why? No human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Quote, This we clearly understand at the end of Jacob's life in the book of Genesis that God's grace must never become captive to position or privilege, or heredity, or expectation, or tradition, or convenience, or disposition. God's grace is sovereign. It, I love this. It cannot be tamed. The economy of God's grace operates on its own principles, humbling human wisdom and exalting the unlikely so that the last are often first and the first last. So don't miss this this morning. Don't miss Joseph's faith in this. You see, because of this adoption, his sons are cut off from the pleasures of Egypt. And they are identified with shepherds. So are you. Your adoption cuts you off from the pleasures of this world and identifies you with your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who are His love it. So Joseph lives out the rest of his days as the leader with his sons with no part in it. For they are Jacob's. Not done. Remember, he's still on his deathbed. 
He went through adoption, done passed on the birthright to his two adopted children, and now he brings the 12 sons in. We can say this is the blessing of 12 sons, but for a few of them, it didn't feel like a blessing. First, we have Reuben. Remember, Jacob's oldest now are disqualified. They have been displaced, and now remember Reuben. Reuben is the one who committed incest, remember? So what does this mean, verse 3 and 4? I want you to go to 1 Chronicles. I believe this helps. You might be still confused in your mind. Okay, I don't understand this Ephraim, Manasseh. 1 Chronicles 5. I love God's word because it answers itself. 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest. Listen. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and A chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. See that? See how that connects together? It says of Reuben, you're as unstable as water. Judges 5.15 bears that out, that the tribe of Reuben was unstable. Then he moves on to Simeon and Levi. He promises them, you will be scattered and you will be divided. Simeon and Levi would not replace Reuben. So they might have thought, well, Reuben's out of the way, now it's us. No. He said, remember Shechem. Remember Shechem? Well, they went in and butchered the people of Shechem. That We will not have leaders that are men of anarchy, but men of justice. And so they are disqualified. Simeon's tribe would later be swallowed up by the tribe of Judah. Levi received the honorable position of the priestly tribe, though they would not own land. They would be dependent. And so this makes way for Joseph and Judah. He speaks of Joseph, verse 20, chapter 49, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you by the Almighty, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above. So remember, the inheritance of Joseph has already been given to the sons, to his sons. They've had the birthright. This is a blessing, a personal blessing of not only recalling what has happened to him through his brothers and through Pharaoh and reminding him of a couple things. I just want you to see, look at verse 24 and 25. I want you to see the shepherd things back again. Who is the mighty one of Jacob? The God who defended Joseph, this is what Jacob is recalling. The mighty one who defended you, Joseph, he's a shepherd. That's what he is. They understood that immediately. That a shepherd leads his sheep and a shepherd defends his sheep. That's what they do. This is what God has done for you. And he's been like a stone. Remember that altar you set up? He's been a stone. It's immovable. It's sure. He's the God of your fathers. You're in the line of the promises. You've been called. God's given you promises. You can count on them. 
And God's almighty. He is the El Shaddai. When when we hear that, we must hear God is sovereign. Sovereign over everything. And then amazingly, we get to Benjamin in verse 7. Remember, he was the favored one. Would you expect this big paragraph on him? He gets one verse. What does he say about Benjamin, his favorite? His people is going to be a force to be reckoned with. And he moves on. Moves on to Judah. Verse 8, chapter 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Remember, Judah's name means that. Praise. Now he says, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my sons, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the, the choice vine. He was washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Don't you miss this. Don't forget your history. Judah was an art sinner just like his brothers. Remember him? He'd married outside the covenant. He went into a prostitute and impregnant Tamar thinking she was a prostitute. He was no saint. He was not God's people, not God's chosen tribe because of something good he did. He's there because of sovereign grace. God, God has called him God has used the whole story of Joseph to prepare him. He's God's called person now. And so we get these two pictures. The picture of a lion and the picture of a scepter. This image of a lion is a picture of a a lioness as she captures her prey by the neck and she carries it up to her cave and she stands over her prey and dares anyone come get it. That's the picture of Judah. That's the picture of Jesus this morning. Is that the picture you have in your mind? It also gives them a picture of a scepter. A sovereign, kingly position says this will never die. This will never end. Verse 10. This is a direct messianic prophecy. From the tribe of Judah, the kingly scepter will come and it will not depart. It's amazing. So Judah, the lion king, was a shepherd. Now whether you've noticed it or not, or whether you're much of a history person. So when Hitler rose in Germany and he began, they began their systematic extermination of the Jews. But the first thing they began, one of the first things they began to do was mark their businesses and mark them. You translate Jew, what it means in German, it's J-U-D-N. They literally called the Jews Judah. So important was the Judah that it came to mean to be Jewish was to be Judean. And from Him came our Savior. So what can we learn this morning? I just want you to see three things. First, I want you to see something here. That the way we end our lives, brothers and sisters, is important. The way we finish 
our journey is important. Jacob's greatest triumph in his life came on his deathbed. This was Jacob's high point, wasn't it? This is high point. He's on his deathbed. He has to summon all his strength just to sit up in his bed. Chapter 49, verse 28 says, And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Verse 33 says, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Faithfulness in God's mission knows no age limits. Faithfulness in God's mission knows nothing of retirement. Faithfulness in God's mission knows nothing of that you got to be 14 before you be involved in mission. No, the moment God saves your soul, He adopts you into His family and He gives you a mission. And He gives it to you until He takes you home. Listen to Vody Balcom. Jacob's journey reminds us that all that we never get to an age where we no longer have to trust God or where we no longer have a lesson we no longer have lessons to learn obstacles to overcome fears to face sins to mortify or journeys journeys to take serving God is not a young man's game where senior saints sit on the sidelines reminiscing about the good old days this is a full participation sport where as long as there is blood coursing through your veins and air in your lungs we must stand at the ready as Jesus reminds us, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. John 9 verse 4. So what keeps us motivated to the end? What keeps us oriented to God causes home? What keeps us tired and weary and busy Christians on mission? It is the fact that the Lord God always faithfully brings about what He's promised. He always does. And so you remember, God promised His people land. And in Joshua 21, 43, we read this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. Every scrap of dirt that God promised His people, He gave it to them. They moved into cities that they didn't they didn't found. They build, moved into houses that they didn't build. God always keeps His promises. And so He promised in the garden, through the seed of a woman, I will deliver my people. Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's no better verse in the world. Jesus did not save you. You aren't saved to us. Just escape hell. You are redeemed so that you might know God, so that you may love Him, so that you may live for Him. The sovereign, faithful, personal God who everyone who puts their trust in Him, He adopts them into His family. No exceptions. 
If you're in Christ today, then Jesus is your brother and God Almighty is your Father. No better news for you this morning than that. The Lord God always faithfully deploys His family into His mission. We know Matthew 28, don't we? Go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations. So hear me. If God has given you an adoption decree that declares to you you are His children, He has, oft, he has also gave you your marching orders that puts you in His army. And one does not come without the other. It doesn't. And so if you were part of VBS this week and you saw the little children coming in, we begin to ask the question, where do they live? God does not call us to put a sign out front and say all are welcome. He calls us to go to them. That's what we're called to do. This is why we have breath in our lungs, why we are not saved and then caught up to heaven. We are left on here because there are more children to be adopted into His family. And God has left us here to do it. We must be faithful to what He has called us to. And He calls us to do it till He calls us home. If you are here today, if you have breath in your lungs, I implore you to finish like Jacob. Who believed in God's promises till God called him home. Lord, you have told us that all who trust me, obey me. Lord, we believe in you by faith alone. But we do realize that the faith that believes in Christ by faith alone, through the work of your Son alone, by his grace alone, is never alone. Because you have changed us. Put your spirit in us. Tell us we can have your mind. We know how much you love us. And with that love that we know that you've loved us, that you have done all of this that we've studied in Genesis so that we might know you. So that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you for the privilege of knowing you and for the privilege of making you known. Lord, destroy our idols this morning. As Ezekiel 37 says, Lord, bring those dry bones together. Those dry bones that are in Kings Mountain, in Shelby, they're in Gastonia, they're in Chicago this morning. Promised us. Lord, you promised us. If we speak your word, you will bring to life those that are yours. And so, Lord, we, we believe you by faith. That we can go into our neighborhoods and into, our, into the nations. That we can go to our work and we can go into our homes. And we can declare your gospel that's been once and all passed down to the saints. And it will cause life through the power of your spirit, Lord.
Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And so now, Lord, would you receive our worship? Would even now, Lord, would you call those who are not yours to be yours by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name? And then would you send us out to make much of you? Lord, we thank you for your rescue. We thank you for your adoption of us into your family. And so it is in your bro- our brother's, Lord, your son's name we pray, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Stand with us and let's worship.